Feast of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Well, hello and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Great to be with you today. And I am going to stay in John today. I missed last week, but uh, the week before that, I discussed the concept of the Holy Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son in the Gospel of John. I have been reading through the Gospel of John quite a bit lately, and so that's why I'm stuck here in this Gospel. Um... So today, I want to give you an analysis of the prologue to the book, because I think that just about everything in the book is derived from the concepts presented in this prologue, John 1, 1 through 18. So the Gospel of John possesses a unique perspective on the life and ministry of Christ. Although the book presents a disparate chronological order to the events in Jesus' life, The primary difference lies more in substantive material. So while the Gospel of John was composed in an abundantly simplistic manner, the spiritual depth held within the book, uh, the depths held within the book, I should say, are inarguable. And the author of John, which is probably John himself, clearly describes the purpose in composing the book. In John 20, 31, he says, "...that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God," and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John 1, 1 1-18 offers a fundamental support to the material in John's gospel. Approached as a prologue, the first 18 verses promote Jesus as the Word, or the Logos in Greek, and as human. Furthermore, because of the underlying purpose of John's gospel that I just referred to, John seems to call the reader to respond to the light of men— both throughout the book and in the prologue. And the primary thematic material in John's gospel is highlighted in the prologue. Through the hidden depth underneath the simple compositional style, the prologue grants readers the opportunity to understand the life of Christ in a more deeper and more profound manner. So there's three aspects here I want to get into, and I would encourage you, you probably read it many times, but to read John 1, 1 through 18. So the first um, imperative that is highlighted in these verses is in verse 1 through 5. That is the word as God. The prologue to John's gospel resonates strikingly similar to the beginning of the Bible. Both the Genesis and the John accounts render the text in the beginning. John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1. And many suggestions have been made that the prologue was originally a a poem uh, from some other religious tradition, perhaps Gnostic even. But there are, there's no shortage of theories on this, and that John took over and adapted for his own ends. That could be the case. Whatever the means employed by the author, John's gospel, more than the other gospel narratives, offers special attention to the deity of Christ. The word, or the logos, of which John speaks is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And throughout the narrative, Jesus is submitted as human but also equal to the Father. Jesus himself says in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. The first five verses of John 1 tie the creation account of Genesis to Jesus, who not only dwelt among humankind, but as one with the Father, was present and involved in the creation of the world. 
And John's gospel submits in no uncertain terms that the word Jesus Christ is, in fact, God himself. In the Hebrew scripture, God brings the world into being with a spoken word. In the New Testament, the word creates all things and takes on flesh to dwell among us. And so we often think of the word as the Bible. The word, when it's spoken of in John, is Jesus. Well, the Bible is derived from Jesus. Jesus is not derived from the Bible. In other words, the entirety of scripture centers around Jesus Christ. The first five verses of the text here clearly reveal Jesus as one who was both with God and who was God from the beginning. Interpretive difficulties exist in the way of punctuation. I'll give you an example. Um, Some might take support from the early translations and the church fathers, and others might approach the text linguistically as a poem, if you will. If... You take it from the early church fathers and the early translations. You place the end of verse 3 with the beginning of verse 4, where it says, um, all things were were made, through him all things were made, that were made. Okay, that that were made, that part. A lot of people would attach that to the beginning of verse 4. And so verse 4 would read something like, um, in him life was made. The second group that I'm talking about, approaching it linguistically, places it at the end of verse 3. And that's what most translations have. I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but there are various approaches. And it might be suggested that the rendering which places the phrase at the beginning of verse 4 presents a more complete view of Jesus' co-equality and oneness with the Father. To read the text in a manner that suggests nothing was made apart from him and that life was made in him could foster a more complete view of Jesus' deity and sovereignty. Because in this view, everything comes from Jesus Christ, whether life or death, made or unmade. He is the decisive factor in all that exists. And so the author begins this text in John 1, focusing on Christ's deity and position as God by emphasizing his involvement in and superiority over all creation. He then transitions to the hope of the gospel, new life. With certainty, John's gospel references Jesus Christ as the light of men, John 1, 4, for example. In other words, the God who created all that exists cares enough about the people whom he created for himself to subsist as their light in an otherwise dark world. And perhaps John's emphasis on the deity of Christ and his power over all creation places the proper perspective on his love for people, because in any ordinary situation, it would not be logical for one deemed worthy to love someone who is unworthy and to love them beyond measure. And so perhaps this gives a new perspective or the right perspective. Moreover, John's gospel illustrates the great need of Jesus Christ among humankind. The sun is, in fact, the only existing light in a dark world. He shines as the light and darkness has not overcome him. John 1.5 And it seems that the author again leaks his prologue uh, to the creation account in Genesis because God created the light himself in Genesis 1.3. Verse 5 is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. If a Hellenistic Jew, or for that matter, even a pagan Greek, 
read through the opening verses to this point and had no personal experience of Christianity, he or she might well take verse 5 to refer exclusively to creation without moral overtones. Light and darkness are not simply opposites. Darkness is nothing other than the absence of light. But the author proceeds to another level beyond the material world. As if to suggest the spiritual realm beyond what is seen in existence, John's gospel presents not only Jesus' power over creation and therefore his divinity, but also his role as spiritual light in a dark world. John's gospel then connects Jesus' role as light to his creation of light and superiority over all in existence. Only one who creates light possesses the ability to simultaneously be light. John, therefore, references Christ's deity in these verses and subsequently points to humankind's need of him as the only existing light in a morally dark and sinful world. So John 1, 1 through 18 focuses on the word, namely Jesus Christ, the Logos, and in an unmistakable way highlights Jesus', Jesus deity, oneness with the Father, and position as creator God. Setting up this perspective likely aids in declaring Jesus' subsequent work among people because to genuinely appreciate the Son's role as light among humankind and his love toward his people, we need to understand the significance of Christ's deity, who he is. He is God. John's gospel unapologetically emphasizes not only Jesus' humanity, but also his deity. So let's get into his humanity, verses 6 through 13. After clearly portraying Jesus' deity, the second portion of, the John's, pro, of John's prologue points to the humanity of Jesus. And where some might refer to Jesus as fully God and fully man, fully implies volume. But Jesus does not possess any volume of deity and humanity because he is both God and human in his nature. And so it would be more accurate to refer to Christ as both truly God and truly man. John's gospel indicates the Christ who is both God and human. John 1, 6-13 provides the foundation of this concept. So verses 6-8 through speak of John as the one who bore witness to the light. The ultimate origins of Jesus Messiah, John will insist, are in the pre-incarnate word, who was with God and who was God. But when he comes to the account of Jesus' public ministry on the stage of human history, John the Evangelist, in common with the synoptics and with early Christian preaching, begins with the witness of John the the Baptist. And so the significance of John's role in this case is that he was sent by God as a forerunner to the Messiah. So he was commissioned by the Almighty, and that fact places him in the same category as Moses and the prophets. And in this respect, he is like Jesus himself, who was also sent from God, a frequent theme in the fourth gospel. And so this is perhaps the reason that the fourth gospel necessitates a distinction between the light and the one who bore witness about the light. John's gospel distinguishes between Christ and John himself briefly and continues with the foundation of the text. So, uh, John, in the gospel of John, he is differentiating here. Yes, Jesus was sent by God as were the prophets, but he is vastly different because he is God. But he's also human. (laughs) 
So the second part of John's prologue centers around the humanity of Jesus. The author writes, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John 1, 9. The astonishing idea here is that the one true God of whom the author writes has come into the world as human. Without bipolarity, John's gospel conveys the fact that Jesus provides and, in fact, is the only source of light in an otherwise dark world. A comic rabbinic expression of this time was, all who come into the world, and it's used to describe every man and is always plural. But when speaking of Christ, John's gospel uses a singular version of this. And so an accurate rendering is the NIV's, the true light, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And so the Gospel of John repeatedly predicates the idea that Jesus being sent into the world is, is predicated of, of him who is the Word. That is Jesus Christ. And so John's prologue here provides the foundation of the entire book, the, untr- the unbreakable truth that Jesus exists as both God and human to save his people from sin. Verse 11 Uh, John's gospel links Jesus to the prophetic truth that he would be rejected by his own people. Again and again, under the Old Covenant, the prophets describe the reluctance of the people to God. And their, their, um, their opposition to God in some cases, and their rebellion, and all day long, Isaiah 65, 2-3, all day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, declares the Lord. Nonetheless, what is stated in verses 12 through 13 captures the essence of the entire gospel. Those who receive Christ are given the right of sonship, not by lineage of blood, but by adoption from God. So when when John describes those who believe as children of God, he uses the word child, tekron, or teknon, and he reserves the word son, huios, for Jesus himself. So two different terms are used here. And in this way, he maintains a distinction between Jesus as the son of God and believers as children of God. The premise of John's text here, then, is not only the fact that God became human, but indeed the purpose for which such incarnation occurred, the salvation of humankind. And while even the chosen people of God rejected Christ, those who receive him are given the position as children of God by adoption and have been grafted into the family of God. Paul discusses this in Romans 11. The deity of Jesus is significant throughout the Gospel of John, but the humanity of Jesus is equally as significant. One who created all in existence has become human so that all who receive him might be heirs with him. The prologue here delivers the basis for thematic material throughout the remainder of the book. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, lived as a man so that those who would receive him would share with him in eternal life. John 3.16 one of the most basic fundamental scriptures that we learn as children. So John references both the deity and the humanity of Christ in this prologue, but he also gives an opportunity for response in verses 14 through 18. After his discussion of Christ's deity and humanity, the text necessitates a response from all who gain such knowledge. 
John reminds the reader that because the word dwelt among humankind in the flesh, we have beheld God himself. John 1, 14 and 18. And additionally, in, in such an act of incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God has provided matchless grace to his people. So John's tender that God himself has been revealed to and indeed dwelt among humankind beckons a response. John's gospel ends the prologue with, he has made him known, John 1.18. It is as if the author poses the question of what the reader will do with such a revelation. The word has dwelled among humankind. Therefore, humankind must respond to the word. So John specifically says that we have seen his glory, John 1.14. Of this glory, uh, Colin Cruz writes this, The reference to glory is also an allusion to God's presence in the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 34-35 tells us when Moses completed the construction of the tabernacle, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As the glory of God was once present in the tabernacle, so it was now present in the word made flesh, end quote. John's testimony then would have resonated with his hearers in a tangible way. The glory of God, such an indescribable phenomenon, was given a name and a face in the person of Jesus Christ. As the law was given to Moses, the grace and truth of God came through Jesus Christ. John 1.17 John's testimony bore witness to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The message he preached then was subject to the truth of Jesus himself. In other words, John's message was derived from that of Jesus. John's focus on the glory of God here, summarizes what he has previously shared. Number one, Jesus, the word, is God himself. Number two, Jesus is also human. And three, Jesus is God in human form so that all who receive him might be saved. In essence, the word is Jesus, Jesus is the word, and the word became human to save his people. So setting the foundation for the remainder of John's gospel, an invitation is seemingly given to those who have seen and heard of the word, Jesus Christ. Understanding that Christ's work continued with his followers for ages to come, such an invitation still abounds today. The author of John seems to place an emphasis not on the one who responds, but on the one to whom humankind is to respond, Jesus Christ. By clearly pointing to who Jesus is, namely in his deity, John makes clear that it is only appropriate to respond to Christ. He is, in fact, the logos and the light of men. So the prologue of John's gospel offers an invitation to receive that light, which echoes throughout the book. So I want to discuss some limitations to this text, this particular text in the gospel of John. When you consider the entirety of the Gospel of John, John 1, 1 through 18 should be considered as an introduction um, or a prologue, as I've been doing here, which certainly reflects the premise of the entire book. And in that regard, the first 18 verses center around Christ's deity, Christ's humanity, and humankind's response to the Son of, Son of God. So the primary limitations to the text within the scope of, this, of, of what I'm saying here 
are twofold, okay? Number one, John's emphasis on signs and miracles and the necessity to personally behold them. And number two, the simplicity of compositional style. So the first limitation here, John's gospel tends to place great emphasis on seeing the signs and miracles of Christ, even suggesting that doing so is required for belief itself. Read John 4.48. So we need to reconcile the necessity for firsthand experience with Jesus' signs and miracles and those who do not possess the ability to see such miraculous occurrences. That's us. We cannot firsthand see Jesus' signs and miracles, him in the flesh. And so one possible reconciliation is the continued incarnate work of Christ after his ascension. Jesus tells his followers that they would do greater things than he, John 14, 12. And that's uh, specifically in re reference to the power of the Holy Spirit. The ascension implies that Jesus did not vanish or become a spirit, but rather continued in his incarnate state. In other words, his work would continue through his followers. But he, in his incarnate state, although still exists, is not present on this earth. And so after a lengthy account of Jesus' farewell address, John 18 begins with, when Jesus had spoken these words, John 18, 1. This may be a piece of wit on the part of John the Evangelist or his redactors, a way of saying that even Jesus Christ tended to go on for a bit. In the beginning was the word, and the word refused to end. More likely, it's a structural punctuation mark, an exclamation point. Reconciling the need to see Jesus' signs and wonders then needs to be reconciled by uh, needs needs to be reconciled by 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 everyone who reads this gospel account. Is it necessary to see Jesus' signs and wonders? Well, we obviously cannot see that in the flesh, so we must reconcile that part of the gospel. Another limitation to the text is the simplicity with which the book is composed. And in a simple manner, you might miss or at least underestimate the depth of the gospel because for that reason, John needs to be explored with care and, and with, um, with incredible thought. And so the first 18 verses uh, here convey what might be understood in a simple manner, especially to a first century Jewish audience. But John brilliantly connects the common thoughts at the time of light and the Logos, to Jesus Christ. And so the Gospel of John holds spiritual depth beyond the surface of the text. When reading John 1, 1 through 18, we need to understand the spiritual depth of the concepts conveyed in relation to the rest of the book. To understand the significance of Christ as the Word or as the light of men, for example, it's not only beneficial but necessary to have in mind the material of the entire book. And so... The seemingly surface-level references hold a spiritual depth that shouldn't be underestimated in the Gospel of John. So both limitations that I've mentioned here must be considered when analyzing this text. And additionally, we need to understand that the first 18 verses in relation to the entire Gospel. Certainly, John 1, 1 through 18 is foundational to the book, so we cannot disconnect the prologue from the book, but we need to understand the entirety of the gospel to truly understand these 18 verses. So it is really spiritual depth in a, a simple message. John 1, 1 through 18 serves as foundational text to support the remainder of the material in the book. 
the author's underlying concepts are referenced in the prologue and transport the essence of the gospel to the reader. John's emphasis is placed on both the deity and the humanity of Christ, and in an inarguable manner, John's gospel declares clearer than the synoptics that Jesus is God in the flesh and lived among humankind. Additionally, John's persistent references to Christ as the light of men seem to beckon a response from humankind. John's gospel then is not, uh, not only declares the person and deity of Christ but by, by his nature, but it also offers hope to a lost and sinful world. And the gospel of John is obviously uh, vastly disparate from the synoptic gospels, not only in chronological order, but in substance and material. John's gospel unapologetically declares the risen Christ and his divine role on earth and beyond. With profound depth in a simple message, the first 18 verses of this book provide, a found, uh, provide the foundational roots from which the work of Christ is derived and around which the entire book of John centers. And that is this. Christ is God. Christ is human. Christ is the light of men. And all three truths demand a response from humankind. So I ask you today, what is your response to Jesus Christ, the light of men? Thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.